Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. It is June 4th, 2020. With me today is Dr. Scott Campbell. Dr. Campbell has been in healthcare for over 35 years, and he's an expert in broad spectrum of health and public health service, health services. Trained in internal medicine, Dr. Campbell is a recognized international expert in emergency and disaster care services. He's been a frontline attending emergency physician for over 32 years. Welcome to Healthcare Untold, Dr. Uh, Campbell. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to talking about um, this challenging period that we're we're having these days. That's right. And but first and foremost, Dr. Campbell, I'd like to thank you for your work as an emergency physician during the COVID nineteen crisis. You know, you're putting your life on the line every day, and I just want to recognize that with you. Um, and today, we wanted to have you share with us how you and several other physicians in the Bay Area concerned uh, when you first began to hear this uh, COVID nineteen story, and you began your advocacy for preparedness for the healthcare system in the Bay Area. Well, thank you, and I and I first want to say that um, clearly my risk um, in the last month um, is nowhere near what my colleagues, nurses, and other physicians who who have been even more. Uh, clinically exposed and I am, um, and I, I want to give a shout out to them, but I think certainly from the get-go, which was uh, in January of this year, um, we all as emergency providers from, you know, medics to policemen to to nurses and docs started to feel that there was something um, big that was brewing. And um, I want to go back a year ago, actually, to the fall of 2019, uh, when I was contacted by a representative of the Chinese government, uh, a wonderful woman named Shirley Duan, and she asked me if she could bring 20 Chinese physicians from Sichuan, which was the province 10 years ago where they had an earthquake, um, to learn about disaster preparedness in San Francisco for the day, right around Labor Day. And of course, I agreed uh, not speaking Mandarin, it was going to be a challenge having translators, but all of the hospitals stepped up and sent their ED chiefs. We met for a day with this great group of Chinese physicians, many of them military physicians, I think, and discussed, quite frankly, at that time, the issue was disaster preparedness around an earthquake, not around an epidemic. Um, ironically, uh, one month later, this would be October, I was asked to write a summary of that visit for the Medical Society of Marin in San Francisco. And in a bit of a, I guess, luck or prescient way, I, I recommended that we take on four different initiatives that we learned from our Chinese friends during that visit. And in reviewing those today, I, I saw that the title of the article was being crew, not passengers. And the four things that I recommended for all of our physicians in San Francisco across the Bay was to better communicate horizontally uh, across specialties, um, to visualize extreme scenarios where you were going to be uncomfortable outside your specialty and going to have to do something that maybe you didn't normally do. Um, start thinking about how you would empty a hospital 
of 20% of its capacity in four or five hours should at that time we were thinking earthquake an event occur and i think last but not least the 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 recommendation from uh to the group was if you have any rusty skills you know brush up on them so that was about you know eight months ago and that was thinking about earthquakes but then we got into the first of the year and um we had a new challenge start to percolate around us Right. Um, so, that, so, so just to go through those, because I think those are really important, uh, Dr. Campbell, you know, in, improving the communication between all the hospitals and, you know, because these hospitals are separate systems of care, they're not on the same medical record, although they may have the same medical company that provides for that, you know, always re, uh, remembering to plan for the most extreme situation so that you can think about what that would look like and be prepared for that. And this whole transitioning of the hospitals, you and I worked on that a lot, trying to move patients that didn't need to be in your emergency rooms uh, into the community. And I think that uh, clearly it's, it's interesting how we can do those things quickly if we have to. Um, and then brushing up on uh, our skills, um, and that's continuous education for all of physicians and medical uh, core, so to speak, in, in our communities. I think that is, uh, um, those are four important issues that looks like is the most important foundation for what you had to contend with. Well, uh, absolutely. And I think that um, one of the things that where I was lucky is as president of the San Francisco Emergency Physicians Association, which was started in 1987 by Mike Callahan at UCSF, and meeting on a monthly basis, we had a really good network of emergency physicians that all knew each other, either through training or working with each other across the San Francisco healthcare grid. Yes. And one of the things that we did, you know, as friends and colleagues, as you know, hospitals are often competitors more than cooperators. And uh, this, this group was unique to the United States. There's no city in the United States where the ED physicians meet on an ongoing basis. Wow. And, you know, we're very proud of that. We're very proud of all the initiatives we've taken on sort of public health and public interest around emergency medicine uh, for that group. But, but pre-disaster, pre-COVID, uh, one of the things with my co-president, Hallam Googleman, who's at Mission Bernal, an emergency physician and toxicologist, we decided to set up a I call it a bat phone, where we had two physicians from every emergency department on a WhatsApp that we knew that when things got bad, we were going to be able to break the glass and be able to communicate with each other uh, much quicker than, as you know, these disaster command centers, well-intentioned, but the information often doesn't move that quickly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I think it's important to acknowledge what um, in terms of San Francisco and the system and reflection of the fact that, you know, we've got a, a, a better story to tell than much around the world in terms of that. And, um, you know, as hospitals and care happens and then they're all within a circle of politics and politicians who I think have become uh, pretty good public health uh, advocates and experts in, in this last several months. They've had a crash course in public health. You know, I don't want us to uh, forget the physicians on the front line, like yourself, who have been really doing that work and the first ones to see 
um, what's happening and being able to communicate. So it's a really a great acknowledgement of San Francisco's care system and the physician systems because, you know, for most of uh, many of these health systems, um, you all know each other in many different ways um, from ever, even going into your residency programs together and many physicians move from one system to another. Um, and so I think it's important to, you know, really acknowledge the San Francisco experience um, in terms of being able to manage a bit the transmission rate of, of COVID-19 throughout the Bay Area. We know isolation, we know masks are important, but, you know, the healthcare system was really what we were trying to protect through that. Can you talk a that's little it, bit more about that? That's exactly correct. So I want to pick up the story a little bit Um Around the first of the year and perhaps in January, I received an alarming email from Shirley, uh, the representative of the Chinese government, that they needed ventilators and PPEs. And that was a very alarming email since we were just starting to get a, a trickle of something that was coming. And that led into February, mid-February, uh, where the medical group, meaning San Francisco Emergency Physicians Association, at one of our meetings decided that we should send out a national survey to all emergency physicians uh, regarding COVID preparedness. This is roughly the third week of February. And so I put that survey together and we sent it to as many ED physicians as we knew around the country, friends, residents that we knew, et cetera, and got a few hundred responses. And by early March, uh, the feedback from around the country was quite alarming, that people weren't ready with PPEs, they were scared of not having enough vents, not having enough albuterol. And again, these were emergency physicians that typically don't get nervous. Right. <laughs> and I think that, um, one of the things that through through lobbying organizations and through other uh, public health organizations, I ultimately had a phone call with uh, leadership at Homeland Security and at ASPR on March 17th, the day we locked down in San Francisco to share the survey results. And again, there was not much at the federal level concern that these survey results from the frontline emergency physicians around the country uh, were something that could not be handled. So I think we took that message back in San Francisco as physicians, emergency physicians, and we decided to set up a once a week phone call for one hour um, every Tuesday, uh, ED physicians, intensivists, all institutions, and it was all hands on deck. And back to the cross communication network. Uh, we ran the call in a way that was essentially Parnassus or the general. What's your problem? What do you need? Do you need PPEs? Do you need vents? What's going on? And I think to give people an example of that sort of collaboration, uh, very unique. And I think part of the reason we had so much, I want to say, luck and success with keeping our cases down in the city at the same time as a low fatality rate is that we were communicating across the grid. We had weather balloons, quite frankly, good old fashioned sort of boots on the ground, talking yeah. to each other every single day. And so 
I at Kaiser knew what was going on at UCSF in sort of an unprecedented way because it meant we had to keep the grid secure. Right. And Asper, for those for the listening audience, is the person in charge of the federal government for health services, and you might have seen him on TV. Um, I think um, I assume that the fact that he wasn't alarmed and jumping up and down that made you nervous to really move. Absolutely, and I think that um, at that point there were maybe five deaths in the country, and so we we knew we needed communication. We knew we needed. Um, we knew we knew we needed to give guidance to our prospective leaderships at the hospital because, as you know, in mid to late March, there was a lot of uh, information coming out of, you know, our colleagues from New York were getting bombarded, but we wanted to make sure the message was out there locally that the local weather also mattered. In other words, we needed to keep track of what was happening in San Francisco and not and not be, quote, distracted by the wolf blitzer epidemic. And I think that that was something that we did, um, you know, with mixed success here. It's very, very difficult to Google the pandemic playbook and to be right on everything, but you have to be nimble and you have to be uh, almost a startup mentality. Yeah. You've got to be willing to try things, but you also have to trust your data and trust your information because otherwise a lot of resources get allocated to the wrong problem. And, you know, it's a transitional thing, Dr. Campo, as you know, you know, when we first uh, started the podcast, um, and by the way, for the listening audience, it was Dr. Campbell who encouraged me to do this podcast. So I want to give you a little bit of a uh, thank you for that. Um, I was really, you know, and I've, I've gone through several disasters in terms of being in charge of a clinic or services. And, you know, you always have to know that things change. So, you know, Part of what I feel like some of the uh, communities are losing, you know, some faith in people uh, from science, so to speak, is the fact that no masks, wear masks, right? No masks. So I do think that this is a changing environment always because we're learning as we're going. Like you said, there is no playbook on this. Um, even if you did it, you'd always have to be changing the pages because it does change. So I do think it's a really important uh, message for people that, you know, this is uh, a changing environment. And, you know, particularly at the hospital level, that changes every day, you know. Um, and so I think this cross-communication and, um, you know, planning for the extreme situations um, is a really important first two steps. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think that even more so moving forward, um, and we can talk about that in a bit, sort of what we see the world to look like 12 months from now, but um, getting back to sort of mid-March, late March, April, we're starting to see um, that our data locally is, is promising um, and that we're not going to be Italy and we're not going to be uh, New York and I think that, um, but to remain extremely vigilant, and again, we kept meeting every week. We kept, uh, literally my apartment, you know, was a little bit of a headquarters for, I called it Club Covey for ED docs. I mean, safely visiting because it was a very, it's a very stressful period. And sometimes you just needed to come over and have a, a beer <laughs> and talk about right. what happened today in, 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 in your own institution. But right. what I think, Back to San Francisco, I think that there's there's a lot of faith in the healthcare institutions here, and I think that so we had a little bit of 
um, some cred, both with leadership and with the public, whether you be it, it be UCSF or Kaiser or the or Sutter to to take a message and and hold it forth. And and again, I think that that was one of the very lucky things that happened to us that may not have happened in you know New Orleans or Detroit through no fault of their own. We had a strong healthcare grid here. You know, as you know, we had some semblance of universal access since, you know, Governor Newsom was the mayor and, and you were the health director back in the early 2000s. So uh, it's not a perfect system here, but we were very lucky that we had we were resource rich along with, I think, some other phenomena that happened that that have at least up to now kept the disease, uh, or I should say the the positive rate, uh, you know, a bit at a bit at bay. Um, the other thing about our network, which is kind of fun, is, you know, I would get calls from, you know, Facebook leadership or Google or Alibaba saying, we want to give you a million PPEs. And again, I think it was easy for us through our group of ED docs to say, okay, who needs PPEs? If you don't need them at the general, we'll get them to, you know, Alameda sort of thing. So I, I just think those are all really important things in terms of preparing healthcare grids for, you know, the, the next event. And I encourage other cities to, you know, adopt our, our model. It's just essentially hard work and communication. It's not necessarily technology, but to that end, I think there's, again, many challenges ahead as we just are at the, you know, the end of the beginning of this. Right. As I would say, um, if you can't talk it, you walk it, um, you know, for particularly for communities who lose its communication, you know, and I really think you walked it and you talked it in terms of really trying to have those um, relationships with um, each of the systems of care. Um, so as you're moving through this now and we see that, um, you know, we've managed this first several months um, in terms of the numbers and, um, you know, public health has really done its good job of, of um, and, you know, supported by all of the uh, political political issues of, of, of the day. Um, you know, curfews, um, you know, uh, staying in place, distancing, all of that really does help. Um, what do you see are the next steps for, for us in, in our community? I think that we need to be very mindful of a complacency and i think that we need to understand that even though we've been successful so far in terms of our let's say day-to-day growth rate of testing at less than one percent test positive even if something is growing at that rate the virus isn't going away and so today if they're on june 4th our 2,600 positive tests, even if it's growing at one and a half percent per day, that means a year from now, you're looking at over 120,000 positives. So it's not fear, but it's reality that people need to be mindful of the mathematics of exponential growth. And the fact that we can't let our guard down, this is going to be with us you know, for the duration for quite a while. I'm very hopeful for a vaccine. I'm hopeful for rapid testing. I'm, I'm hopeful for new and unique treatments by different delivery systems, uh, whether it be nebulized 
remdesivir, things that are going to be able for us to diagnose and treat more quickly. But I also think people, whether they be the enterprise business or they be healthcare delivery system or 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 citizens, need to be very very safety oriented, and understand that this uh, little bugger is is here and it's just not going to disappear. It's going to put pressure on our delivery system over the next 18 months. Um, that's the reality. That's what keeps you know me up at night, along with more immediate questions like how do we do things like monitor skilled nursing facilities so that we know, you know, rather than a, you know, a once a day report, which is difficult for them to put out, how do we know exactly what's going on in, in those institutions? Uh, those are the hospital waiting rooms now, right? I mean, those yeah. 20 skilled nursing facilities in San Francisco, and it's critical we understand, you know, not only from the provider standpoint, both the the healthcare workers who are there, but the patients, what exactly is happening in that environment? And that's not historically, as you know, and I know, a place where hospitals have paid a great deal of attention, right? It's sort of a right. place you put people, not where you understand exactly the dynamics of back and forth. Right. And also licensed by a whole different entity, um, as well as with different types of regs and different reporting requirements going up to different state uh, health departments. So and congregate living, institutional congregate living, it has to change completely because of this. So, um, and, you know, I think people have really learned about skilled nursing facilities to the point of during these types of outbreaks, do we really need to have the staff sleeping, living within the skilled nursing facilities? Because as you know, it is people coming in and the workforce coming in that has um, infected many of the people in these skilled nursing facilities, whether it's visitors or and before they close them down. So it is going to change a lot of this congregate living uh, medical facilities. And, you know, you and I worked on several um, discharge ex, uh, locations for people leaving the ED. And there were congregate, congregate living areas, whether that was a respite or a, um, a um, you know, a Sobering center. So, mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. So those are going to have to change uh, dramatically in terms of keeping everybody safe during this time. And, you know, you talked about not going away. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, this could be, become an endemic and probably will be an endemic disease or um, virus. And that means that we're going to have to contend with this. And hopefully, like you said, we'll have a vaccine that, you know, even with the flu, Dr. Campbell, you know, we're always struggling to keep everybody vaccinated. And so this, again, leads us to, you know, continuing to have this as a community responsibility for families and individuals to really take care of themselves, to help the healthcare system survive and continue to provide when they're, when they're most needed. I'm hopeful that, that, when that vaccine is available, whether it be 12, 14, 18 months from now, but it, it clearly is not going to provide 100% immunity. And it clearly, we need to go for our high risk populations first and foremost. But I'm also hopeful that, again, people will embrace the science of, of risk. And um, in the past, if they felt that their son or daughter was not going to benefit from a vaccine, they they would revisit that uh, emotional uh, debate, something I don't want to get into today, but yeah. I'm hopeful that yeah. on this particular 
event that people, uh, when it's available, and I and I, my hunch is that they will. <laughs> yeah. My hunch is that they will, but yeah. I do think that back to June fourth, and we were talking about the, uh, you know, social gatherings and people's right to protest in San Francisco. I think has has had a a great day yesterday, and maybe not a great weekend. But when people come together without masks, um, no matter their age, it, it, you know, it bothers all of us. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'm nervous about yeah, that me too. phenomena. Me too. Me too. And, you that know, phenomena. and just to recognize that George Floyd's, uh, Floyd's uh, memorial was today. And, uh, you know, you really have to give it to the young people in our communities and all of us who went out to protest um, and, um, you know, some changing, you know, the pandemic has changed dramatically the, uh, the, the field of health in many ways, Dr. Campbell. And I do think that also this has caused, and the George uh, Floyd murder has also caused a social, um, you know, pandemic as well. So, um, and that one we want to embrace. Um, so I do think that, um, for the future, you know, healthcare is what's so important. And I think it is, um, I'm watching this as well, is the fact that, you know, we have a role in saving lives and protecting ourselves through the social distancing and masks. And I hope to that we all rebuild the, the, the trust back into public health through this uh, experience that we all go through because, uh, you know, it, it, it did help. And it did save lives, and um, and hospitals are there for when we need them in an emergency. Um, and you know, you and I worked a lot on trying to make the emergency room an emergency room and not a social service room. Um, and so, I do hope that as we go through this, we'll continue to do that great work with institutions to improve their healthcare uh, access. Um, and we were so lucky in San Francisco because we had a universal and we have a universal health, uh, health access system, which means everyone has a health home. And so they have a physician um, and then they use the emergency when they have emergencies. Well, I think that I want to echo everything that you just said. And I think that looking forward, I'm hopeful that clearly that emergency departments are uh, used again for emergencies uh, and that's not Kaiser centric. That's I think on behalf of this is what the grid can bear these days. And we did learn that when March 16th, when the uh, shelter in place went into effect or 17th in San Francisco, and I believe first city in the country that clearly the emergency visits decreased uh, almost to 50% of normal. Now, just like everything in life, that's a bit of a moral hazard because I will say that at places like Kaiser or maybe San Francisco General that might be delivering more value-based care rather than RVU-based care, that may be a good thing. But on the other hand, again, these institutions need emergency medical care uh, like Sutter and Dignity to survive. And so I think that we have to be very mindful of everybody's business model within the grid and not be critical of one hospital or another that 
their volume was down so much that therefore they may be in jeopardy of being able to keep their hospital open. So I think there's there's goods and bad, you know, good and bad outcomes of everything that we we, we saw during shelter in place. And I think that, um, again, moving forward, it's good to see the volume come back so that our neighboring hospitals can survive. I think it's very, very important to the safety of all that that they do get their volume and they're able to do their elective surgeries. Right. You know, we had two kinds of COVID deaths, right? There's the unfortunate patient from uh, the nursing home that comes in in respiratory failure and is COVID positive and, and ends up in the ICU with pneumonia. But there's also was the patient who had valvular disease and stayed away from getting their cardiac surgery because they were afraid right. and they died. Right. And so I think that, again, we just have to be mindful of the messages we send as, you know, both health leaders and as, you know, business operatives of healthcare delivery system that we're here for you. Come use the emergency services, but don't stay away because you feel that they're not safe because every hospital in the city I know has worked very hard to make their uh, acute um, services extraordinarily safe. And I think that's a message if there are local listeners that people need to get care if they need care and don't be afraid about getting getting sick at the hospital with COVID. I think it's really important now yeah, moving that, forward. Thank you, Dr. Campbell, for th- those comments. And, you know, we've focused a lot on restaurants, about reopening restaurants. Um, and so I do think it's important to understand because um, I, I heard physicians saying, what happened to all the people with strokes and heart attacks, right, during this period of time? Um, I do think the, hot, the emergency room now is um, expanded its care. And before, you know, you really had a focus on a, a very uh, highly contagious disease. And now, as we have more control over that, you know, that it's really important for people to do the preventative care. And also, if they do need that emergency room, go through the process of going through the however they do that in terms of the providers and then to their emergency room. Um, that the emergency rooms have also expanded and opened again. I think that's an important message to, to get. Absolutely. And I, again, I think that it breaks my heart because I have, living in the city for uh, 25 years, many friends that are restaurateurs, many of them are not ever coming back. And the ones that are struggled to stay open with curbside, et cetera, um, are, are, are struggling. That's right. And and I'm just using restaurants as one example. And uh, in my neighborhood, I counted on one street, probably if there were 12 restaurants on that block, you know, a solid six aren't coming back. So there's real financial, I guess, pain along with physical pain, along with emotional pain going on right now. And it's very difficult as a healthcare provider to sort of send a message of, I, I know you want to open up and I'm in favor of you opening up. And I know you need to put money on the table for your employees, but we've got to be ready to be nimble. If this goes sideways again, you're going to have to close down. And I can only reiterate that message. And I know it's very difficult for the mayor and for leadership at DPH and the governor, you know, to manage that um, meme. But there's a lot of collateral, you know, damage to not being open. But at the same time, I think we need to be smart. 
Yeah, it's that real balancing act that uh, Governor Newsom talked about. I think he said toggle. You have to toggle back and forth. And, you know, um, as I watched uh, thousands of people with masks, a lot of them masks, uh, protesting and being out in the street. But, you know, I, I do think that we're going to get better at how do we manage these hotspots or these flares that, as they may happen. Um, and um, so I do think it's important for us to, you know, economy is, it has the hospital is an economy, the restaurants are an economy, the people who are, uh, you know, coming and cleaning your house and all those essential workers. I don't want to forget about those because many Latino, Latino workers were in our hospitals because they were out there doing that job. Um, and they were the ones that got sick. Um, and that's kind of an untold story as well um, in terms of essential workers in San Francisco and those other ones that have been really impacted. And then you think about that underlying um, medical needs that they have that maybe were unattended to as well. So, um, Dr. Campbell, any last thoughts, uh, messages? Well, I, as I said, I remain hopeful um i i i think that the emergency medical community the critical care community i mean the, the medical community in san francisco is is here i'm speaking for all physicians nurses medics um you know the entire co con continuum right i don't want to leave anybody out but we're we're here and i want people to realize how fortunate they are to be in this island you know, the seven by seven island. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, we can do this. Well, we did. And I think you're going to continue. Um, and I think, you know, as we see this, uh, the dramatic changes that we we'll may see from everything from social change to healthcare change. Um, but I sure am glad you're on the health side of this, Dr. Campbell, and doing your best in trying to um, bring you know, organization, communication, and response. And so I really want to thank you on behalf of Healthcare Untold, and we hope to have you back again to get, well, keep giving us updates. Thank you, Barbara, and thank you for all your great work through the years. And I want to give you a big shout out because I know you had many leadership positions and a lot of our success today was because of the work, the foundation you laid over the last 20 years. So I want, let's end with that. Uh, give, your, give yourself a little uh, a pat on the back. Okay. okay I will clap. <laughs> okay. clap. Thank you so much, right. Dr. Campbell, thank but you. don't leave us yet because I want to <laughs> say thank you and please send comments to Healthcare Untold to our Facebook. I also want to thank Gerardo Sandoval, Dr. G for his technical and production support. Healthcare Untold will also be supporting local businesses as Dr. Campbell was talking about who are transitioning to different modes of sale. Please support these businesses and keep them thriving. Until next time, stay safe, stay home, keep your masks on when you're outside. This is Barbara Ann Garcia at Healthcare Untold. Who doesn't need an empanada during these trying times? San Francisco, you are able to order some empanadas from El Sur. Handmade empanadas inspired by Argentina and crafted with love in San Francisco. El Sur will be open for takeout and delivery only. Please order online under Bake at Home for delivery and under Pickup in the cafe section of their website. You can order empanadas online at elsursf.com. El Sur thanks you for your continued support and remember, stay safe. Thanks, El Sur, and thank you for your empanadas.